Hello. Hello. Welcome back to another episode of Diagnosing a Killer. I'm Coel. And I'm Kenna. I want to know who it is. Who or it is or whom it is. Or where it is. What? That's dun, such a dun, douche dun. time traveler thing to say. Dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> Ugh. Okay, buckle in, folks. It's going to be a lengthy one. Today we're going to be talking about the Cecil Hotel in LA. Oh my god. I definitely have heard a podcast on this, on this story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Cecil Hotel was originally built in 1924 by William H. Hanner, Charles L. Dix, and Robert H. Shops. That's hard to say. Robert H. Shops. So it was built in the heart of downtown Los Angeles on Main between 6th and 7th. At the time, it cost over $1 million to make, but today it would be the equivalent because I know you like exchange yeah. exchanges, exchange rates. Um, it would be $21 million today. Oh my gosh. So it was built with 700 rooms, so 300 of them were rooms that were running at about $1.50, but these didn't have a bathroom inside of it. So it's kind of like that hotel that we stayed at in New York. Like, ours Mm -hmm. had a bathroom inside of it, but they have, like, those communal bathrooms, like, in the hallways. So those were running for $1.50. Then the next set of rooms it was about 200 of them and they went for two dollars with one private toilet in the room and then of course another 200 would be 250 with a full bathroom okay so the cecil hotel would open on december 20th of 1924 and would be advertised as a 14 story i thought this was interesting because on the flyer it says quote absolutely fireproof which i thought was really interesting so i'm wondering if it was like one of the first hotels that actually had like steel and concrete and yeah. stuff you know what i mean instead of it just being wood yeah or something so the Cecil hotel um was actually built keeping in mind for like travelers and business people um this is also around the time when the railroad like railroad work was a really big thing like mm-hmm. industrialism so a lot of jobs um were available in a lot of the major cities that were developing so a lot of people were traveling for work and whatnot So hotels around this time were popping up all over the place, so you can imagine that this gave way for a lot of employment opportunities. Mm -hmm. The hotel was absolutely gorgeous. The lobby was made almost completely out of marble. The windows were stained glass, and there were, like, lush palm trees in, like, every corner, and um, tons of alabaster statuaries everywhere, so it was just really, like, luxurious hotel. It was some fancy shit. Sounds like the Argyle. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, just a few years later, the U.S. would experience the biggest economic fallout of its history, which was the Great Depression. Mm -hmm. It lasted from 1929 to 1939. And just to give everyone an idea of how economically devastating this was, we're all sort of old enough to know, or most of us are old enough to know, the Great Recession. That was from 2008 to 2009. Mm -hmm. We saw a decrease in the market value by 1% in that year, 08 to 09. The Great Depression saw a drop of 15%. Oh, my gosh. Gives you an idea of how absolutely devastating this was to our system. 
So international trade was actually cut off by 50%, and the U.S. unemployment rate rose 23%. Wow. So on top of financial, the financial fallout working against the Cecil Hotel, it was also placed next to Skid Row. So these are some facts about Skid Row, if nobody knows what that is or the history behind it. Los Angeles was actually the end of the Transcontinental Railway Line in 1876. Many times displaced veterans and transient people would hop on the trains and get from state to state, but oftentimes they would end their travels at the end of the line, which was L.A. And there were also many work opportunities at the time, like we talked about earlier. However, it was really difficult to house such an influx of people. A lot of the time, men would congregate in a specific area called Hobo Corner at the end of um, an area called Hell's Half Acre. Some of them could afford hotel rooms, but most um, event like would just stay on the street, and they would just wait for word of new work around the area. Mm-hmm. Since a lot of these men were on the streets, they um, would choose to spend a lot of their time in and out of bars and other establishments that were open just to get out from the elements. So after about 30 years of this going on, communities started to somewhat thrive on their own. Like, there were people that started to become infamous within these communities, like preachers, teachers, and they even began to, like, govern themselves. Mm. So it was like a small community if you lived in that needs rules. Yeah, of course. (laughs) So not everything was capiche, though. Capiche. Capiche. Not everything was was all good, though. Um, Men were often arrested for various things like public drunkenness, indecency, or violence. You know, fights would break out. They would be arrested and then released back onto the streets where they came from, which was around Skid Row area. Other than this, there was nothing really done to correct the overpopulation issue. Um, I think it's because the city knew that they were being hired for work, and usually, like, city work. So either way, it was like, we have to deal with these people because they're also building our stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was, they were really thought of as cheap labor. So in the early 1900s, streetlights had become, uh, began to be installed. And a lot of petitions from local residents um, were to essentially push the boundary of where these homeless people or transient people could be. Mm. So um, essentially, if there was like, if there was any streetlights, essentially you couldn't be around that area because it was a nice enough area. Huh. Yeah. So, so you're not allowed to see in the dark. <laughs> well, I guess not. <laughs> this is our light. <laughs> <laughs> so by the 1920s, the line between the transient community and the rest of LA rested right on Skid Row. So if you look at Skid Row, it's actually like a like a rhombus kind of. Um, so it's not actually like when you're on Skid Row. It's like when you're in Skid Row. In Skid Row, yeah. yeah. So the Cecil actually sits on the border of Skid Row. So let's fast forward again during the Great Depression. So this we, we ba- went back through the history of Skid Row. Now we're going back to the Great Depression. Because of the state of everything in the whole country was in dire straits, hotels in the local area were actually forced to open their doors to provide low-income options for yeah. people to be housed. Makes sense. You had to. So when Skid Row was... Because Skid Row is so close, the hotel's clientele changed dramatically within just a few years of it being open. So drugs, sex workers, and violence took a hold of the hotel very quickly, and it began to gain, like, a seedy reputation. So the Cecil Hotel had all of the makings for this negativity, and almost like in the word of Zach Bagans, it's a portal to hell. (laughs) (laughs) So, I want to go ahead and give a very broad... um, uh, content warning 
we're going to be talking about all throughout this episode, we're going to be talking about um, mostly self-harm, suicide, um, things like that. So if anybody is sensitive to those kinds of things, I was thinking about putting a timestamp on it, but let's be honest, it's pretty much going to be the entire podcast. So again, if somebody's sensitive to that, um, or at any time you just want to fast forward, I'm going to be going through, quickly be going through the years that were to follow um, after the Great Depression and all that um, with the Cecil Hotel. So we're going to talk about the history of the Cecil with as it pertains to people. The first known recorded death at the Cecil Hotel was a 52-year-old man. His name was Percy Ormond Cook. Percy had been going through marital issues, and his wife had left with their child a few months before. January 22, 1927, Percy took his own life by a self-inflicted gunshot to the head. The man left a note detailing that he, in an attempt to buy happiness, had spent nearly $40,000. Yeah, could you imagine how much money In the 20s? Do the, do the math. I just looked up the conversion rate for that. It's $682,000. Oh my God. That's ridiculous. That's so and this is just a few months. Yeah. So his wife and his child had left. He was a successful real estate agent and he was originally from Rhode Island. Um, but I guess, I don't know what marital problems they had, but wife and baby left. And in an effort to buy happiness, he spent that much money in just Jeez, a few months. Louise. I've never even seen that much money. I've never even seen 40000 I've never even seen 40000 <laughs> Percy was transported to the hospital where he later succumbed to his injuries. Yeah. Um, how he ended up at the Cecil is kind of unknown. Like I said, he had paperwork from Rhode Island, so they knew he was from Rhode Island. But maybe he just wanted to get as far away from the situation as possible because he was in yeah Rhode Island and this is L.A. Another few years later, a man checked into a hotel room by the name of James Willis, hailing from Chicago. This man would stay just one week before being found dead in his hotel room by a maid on November 19th, 1931. Mystery surrounds his death, as his name was in fact not James Willis, but 46-year-old W.K. Norton, and it seemed that he had poisoned himself as poison capsules were found in his... Capsules? As poison capsules were found in his vest pocket. This is unusual given that it's a male individual, and uh-huh. it's statistically less likely that a man would poison himself, right? Uh-huh. So, that that was interesting. Sometime in September of 1934, a 25-year-old man named Benjamin Dodditch checked into the Cecil. Just a few short hours after checking in, Benjamin shot himself in his hotel room. He was found by a maid after investigating where the gunfire had come from. Benjamin did not leave a note. Just a few hours. Like, he checked in with the intent of doing that. Yeah. Oh, I see. You know what I mean? I thought it was like... The hotel made him. (laughs) Maybe. (laughs) That's kind of what we're talking about. Hey, y'all, it's Halloween, okay? Yeah. On July 26, 1937, former Army Medical Corps officer Sergeant Louis D. Borden checked into the Cecil. The sergeant had been in poor health for some time, and he had decided that he did not want to suffer any longer. Sergeant Borden was found in his hotel room with a box of razors next to his body. He had slit his own throat in an effort to make it a quick death, to which it was... There were tons of farewell notes thrown about the hotel room, but most notably one that stated, quote, Miss Edna Hassener of P.O. Box 664, Edmonds, Washington, to be my sole beneficiary of whatever little I leave, end quote. I just can't get past the fact that he slit his own throat. That is That's brutal. Gruesome. That's brutal. How would your, like, your, I feel like your body wouldn't allow you to do that. Not like, only that, but a box of razors. 
Like, yeah, like how multiple many, choices. Like, how many times are you going to do it? Ugh. I don't know. It's very, very brutal. In March of 1938, Grace E. Margot, age 25, would fall nine stories to her death, her body being tangled up in phone lines on her way down. It is unclear whether this was intentional or an accident at that point. They don't know. In January of 1939, Roy Thomas, a 35-year-old Marine firefighter, jumped from the 14th floor, landing on a nearby building. He did not leave a note or a reason as to why he decided to commit suicide. His family was in Port Arthur, Texas, and it was the family was notified on the next day. Damn. On May 27, 1939, Edwin Neblett checked into the Cecil Hotel. Three days later, he was found in his room after ingesting poison capsules. Like, where are they getting these poison capsules from, huh? So now it's, like, multiple deaths that have been similar. There's now two gunshots to the inflicted, self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. There is now two people that have jumped to their deaths, and now there's been two poisonings. Mm-hmm. What the hell? He was a Navy man. Edwin was. He was a Navy man who had served on the USS Wright. Uh, one note was addressed to Staten Island, New York. He was 34 years old. Oh. See, this is what's really interesting, too, is that a lot of people are, like, from Chicago or, like, not New York and not from L.A., In January of 1940, a woman checked into the hotel underneath the name Evelyn Brent. A few days later, on January 10th, the woman was found after ingesting poison. Later identified as Dorothy Seeger, she was a school teacher. Um, She would not recover from the poisoning and pass on the 12th. How come all these people have aliases, too? That's what's strange to me, too. They're checking in under different names. Under different names. And obviously, they're not the only people checking in. There's been people in and out of the hotel this entire time that don't have this issue. They're yeah. not coming into this, you know, suicide right. thing. It's not like every person that walks through the door is doing this. Is it? But it's also very interesting. Do you think it's similar to that, like, that forest in Japan where, like, people go to kill themselves? Like, do you think it's, like, a what are they, it's becoming one of those things where people are like, okay, well, if we want to kill yourself, you go to the Cecil? Yeah, and I think also with the name change thing, it's probably because they didn't want to shame their family. So, like, if it was written in the paper, it would be written in the paper as this person. That makes sense. They're registered under that. And suicide was not something you did. You it's know. not as it was talked about as it, it is today. Yeah, exactly. Like, there was no awareness about it. And, you know, not only that, but it goes against God and the Bible and all yeah. this stuff. And, like... That could be a shameful thing for a family to experience. That makes sense, I guess, with the name change. Dorothy Jean Purcell was 19 years old when she checked into the hotel with her boyfriend, Ben Levin. Ben was a hardworking man. He was a shoe salesman. So hardworking. Um, (laughs) I don't know. He could have gone door to door, um, but he worked a lot of hours. One evening when the couple was sleeping, Dorothy awoke with painful stomach cramps. Writhing in pain, she didn't want to wake up her boyfriend. So she went to the shared bathrooms in the hallway. There, Dorothy noticed that she was bleeding, and unbeknownst to her, she was pregnant. So there in the showers, she gave birth to a baby boy. Dorothy would later testify that she believed that the child was deceased at the time of birth, although an Emmy would testify for the prosecution, stating that the baby was in fact alive when Dorothy decided to do what she did next. I think I know what happens. She found a window from the 13th floor. Dorothy would throw her newborn from the window to its death. Not what I thought was going to happen. Landing on a nearby roof. Oh my god. For some reason, I thought that she, like, put it in one of the walls or something. What? Maybe that was a movie. (laughs) She hid it in a pillowcase. That's terrible. Yeah, isn't that awful? Oh my gosh. So three heinous. 
Three psychiatrists testified that they believed that Dorothy to be dealing with some kind of postpartum psychosis, um, and she would be found not guilty by reason of insanity. Where was the boyfriend? Asleep. She didn't want to wake up her boyfriend. That's why she was like, oh, he's a hardworking guy. I don't know. Maybe he got mad at her in the past for waking him up. She had a baby in the bathtub and then proceeded to throw it out the window all the while he's just asleep. In the showers, but yeah. Oh, you're right, because they didn't have the the bathroom in the room. Yes, yeah, that makes sense. Okay, I was like, what? Yeah, she didn't want to wake him up, so she was like, and she was writhing in pain, so she's like, maybe a hot shower or something. She noticed that she was bleeding, and then she gave birth to a baby that in the hallway so bathroom. That is so weird. Like, that's just an odd story. That's that's awful. Isn't that terrible? She was just like, oh, oh no. Oh, my gosh. Like, can't have this. But, like, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's why I think the psychiatrist found her to be insane at the time of the event. Because... Like, why wouldn't you go to your boyfriend and be like, why, I just honestly, had a baby. Why wouldn't you leave, just leave the baby in the bathroom? Someone else could it's have found true. him. It's true. No, she oh threw that baby God. out of a window. That is so sick. In November 1947, a man by the name of Robert Smith jumped to his death from the seventh floor. He was 35 years old. Helen Gurney checked into the hotel around the third week of October in 1954. But by the 22nd, she would throw herself from the seven-story hotel room, landing on the Cecil Hotel's marquee sign. She had registered under the name Margaret Brown, but police later identified her as Helen Gurney by the items that they found in her purse. One bystander was actually taken to the hospital, not because he was injured, but the man was so shocked by what he saw, he needed psychiatric evaluation. I don't fucking blame him. It's incredible. I... Can't even imagine being in that situation, like, being next to some, like, when that happens around you. Um, but I've heard it is It's traumatizing. Frightening. It's horrible. Yeah, this was really awful um, because it, it, a lot of people had began to gather outside. They said that there was up to, like, 100, 150 people that were watching because they had to bring in a fire truck. To get her. To get her off. So she was just out there. Oh, my God. That's so sad. It's heartbreaking. So... I've noticed it's interesting that the people that have been jumping to their deaths has all been on, like, different floors. It seems like there's only been two off of the seventh floor, but every other one are different. So Mm -hmm. if this is some sort of, like, paranormal or whatever, it's not really, like, located in one spot. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, it's always on the 13th floor or the 12th floor or whatever. The Cecil has no MO. Yeah, exactly. Other than the poisoning and the jumping. Well, then we have shootings and throat slitting as well, so that's not the same. Julia Frances Moore was a woman who traveled from St. Louis to L.A. for unknown reasons. On February 11, 1962, she leapt from the 8th floor and landed on the 2nd floor roof. She had 59 cents in her purse, but a bank book suggested that she had close to $2,000 in her bank. Hmm. So maybe not financial issues. Yeah. She left no note, and the police gave this information to the press, hoping that the woman's relatives would eventually reach out to find her. No follow-up on whether or not the family was ever actually located. Wow. October 12th of 1962, Pauline Otten was staying at the Cecil when her estranged husband came to meet her in the room to discuss the state of their relationship. Mm -hmm. The conversation did not go well, and when her husband, Dewey, left the room in anger, Pauline jumped from her ninth-story room. However, she would accidentally claim the life of George Giannini when she fell on top of the man, killing him instantly killing the both of them instantly. 
Not even kidding. Oh my gosh. Like, Isn't that horrible? Like, what terrible luck. Li- like, literally. Literally. That is, like, I, I don't even know what to say. That's At wild. first, police believed that they both had leapt from the building, but when it was discovered that George still had his shoes on, which is indicative of somebody jumping, because um, usually they fly off, or on impact, they come off. Oh. Um, and his hands were actually still tucked into his pockets. That's when they knew that he was just an oh innocent gosh, bystander. Oh my just a bystander? Yeah. I was thinking that you were trying to say that people always take their shoes off before they jump to their death. <laughs> so I was like, why? Superstition. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was, it was literally wrong place, wrong time. That's, That's awful. Horrible. And like, how, like, what are the odds of that? That's like a person-sized, like, spot that you have to stand in. And it was just like yeah, the perfect look- size. Like, right. It was like tiny. Like, I'm sure she was smaller than him. Oh my gosh. So Pigeon Goldie Osgood, her name was Goldie Osgood, but she went by Pigeon. Um, she was known throughout the community as a very kind woman. She gained her nickname because every day she would walk down six to get to Pershing Square and feed the birds, notably wearing her favorite baseball hat, which was a Dodgers hat. The 65-year-old woman had lived at the Cecil for close to six years and had never caused problems. On Thursday, June 4th, 1964, friends came over to Goldie's place to chat and just visit. Her friends left for the evening, however, just moments later, a door-to-door phone book salesman would find Goldie's door ajar. When he pushed open the door, he saw the figure laying face down in a pool of blood, and it, it was Goldie. She had been beaten, raped, stabbed, um, to death. Oh my gosh. Police recognized the M.O. from two other murder scenes of women who were known to feed birds in the park nearby. So these had occurred in the last two weeks or so. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's not a suicide. No, it's not. It's our first murder. After Goldie's body was found, Jock Ellinger was seen walking through Parish Square, covered in blood. Police arrested him for the murder of Goldie Osgood. However, after intense interviews and interrogations, Jock Ellinger would be released. Goldie's murder would never be solved. The end. What? That's the end of that. Yeah. So who, what did this, why was this guy covered in blood? I don't know. They didn't specify that. I tried to Google that. Interesting. And maybe that's something that's uh, typical of Skid Row, is for people to walk around with, like, bloody clothes. Honestly, I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that either. Especially <laughs> really with, like, don't. how hard labor was, like, back in the day. Like, I was actually listening to an episode of a podcast about uh, Jack the Ripper recently, mm-hmm. and the part of London that he was, like, prevalent in, and that part of London was, like, really, really bad, like, really poor. Yeah. And there was frequently men walking around covered in blood because they would either get in, like, fights or they were butchers and they had, like, animal blood on them. And it was, like, not uncommon to see people walking around um, like that. It's really interesting, yeah. Which is probably why he got away with what he got away with and he was never found. Right, yeah. They were just like, oh, no, just the the local butcher. Uh Yeah, honestly. Yeah. They didn't know how right they were. (laughs) Dexter. (laughs) A woman fell to her death December 20th, 1975. The woman who checked in was under the name of Allison Lowell but had no identifying items on her. She was described as having brown hair, scars on her wrists, wearing a blue sweater, blue pants, blue coat, black shoes, and a bus ticket in her pocket stamped for December 15, 1975, from Bakersville, California. Her identity has never been found. Damn. That's crazy, right? On September 1st, 1992... Okay, we're in 92 What? Yeah. It's been, like, 70 years! (laughs) A man, well, not since the last one, 75 to 92. Oh, since the beginning of the... Oh, yeah. So these are, these are very, imbe- like, very far in between. Yeah. They're not, like, 
every other week there's yeah. like a murder or like a whatever. I see. It's just, you know, the overall history of it. So on September 1st, 1992, a young man about 20 to 30 years old was found behind the hotel in an alleyway. Given the trauma to his body, he had either jumped or had fallen to his death. The boy has never been positively identified. Oh my gosh. So at this point, we're going to take a break. From all this Cecil action happening, okay? And we're going to switch gears because, again, after all, this is a true crime podcast and we have yet to talk about a serial killer. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about a serial killer. All right, let's do it. Ricardo Leva Munoz Ramirez, or Richard Ramirez. No. Was, yeah. Was born February 29th, 1960. You son of a bitch. You made me think that we were doing a fucking spooky episode about this hotel. I didn't even know we were going to be talking about like a serial killer. And now I'm like, let's go. So he's a leap year baby. That's kind of unique to be born on February 29th. Yeah. I mean, he's not cool. So. <laughs> so. so he was actually born in El Paso, Texas. He's a Texan. Yeah. Uh, Mm, I wouldn't give him that much credit. <laughs> His parents were uh, Julian and Mercedes Ramirez. He was the youngest of five. His father was an established man back in Mexico where he was actually a police officer. Mm. Julian was. However, it was really hard for him to find work in the States, and eventually he settled in the railroad business, which I thought was kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. Richard's father was actually an alcoholic. He would verbally and sometimes physically abuse the wife and children. Oh, man. So Richard actually started drinking and smoking weed by age 10. Richard was extremely close to his cousin Miguel, who he called Mike. Mike was a decorated Green Beret, and while serving in the Vietnam War, Mike had committed tons of, like, atrocities that Richard found fascinating. Like, he would love to listen to Mike talk about all these brutalities that this guy had done, right? Um, in fact, when Richard was 12, Mike showed him photographs of women that he had beaten, raped, murdered, and even decapitated when he was 12. At 12? At 12. That is absolutely ridiculous. This is a complete side note, but I meant to say it earlier and I just forgot. When we did the BTK episode and I was talking about how he was uh, in the Air Force base, I kept saying Air Force base and I know that it's Air Force (laughs) base and I was like super self-conscious about that when I was editing. So I want to make sure everyone knows. It's, I know it's Air Force Base, not Air Force Base, but I just kept saying it wrong for some reason. I think a lot of the times I feel like I'm pronouncing something correctly, but it's with the headsets yeah. and then the like slight echo and then listening to us and then everything else. Sometimes I feel like I don't, like when I'm listening back, I definitely pronounce things strange. Yeah. But it's just because... It's like Tito's I, and Vodka. Yeah. Like, you don't realize you're saying something wrong, because it sounds right. <laughs> I want to than vodka. Okay, anyway, back to the story. That was no just worries. a side note. Yeah. That's wild, though. At 12 years old, that's no. absolutely, like, terrifying. And I would go so far as to say that I kind of maybe blame this Mike guy for uh, Richard's future. For cultivating all that. Yeah, Richard would say, um, thinking back about that moment, he said that the images excited him and didn't repulse him. Cute. But he was really fascinated by it. Awesome. At 12. So Mike would tell Richard stories of sneaking in and out of camps or villages in the night to commit these acts, like these horrible acts, to like make people, like keep people on their toes and like surprise. Doesn't it sound familiar a little bit? If anybody knows a little bit about Richard Ramirez, yeah, sounds a little familiar. 
He's so, like, here's how to get away with this. Like, right. he's just giving him all the he's tools. Sneaking in there, he's like, just to keep, like, I mean, his intent was either to rape the women, murder the men, whatever it was. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people got away with a lot of shit in God, Vietnam. That's awful. So Richard, of course, at this time is still living at home. He's 12, 13 years old. But he became increasingly angered by his father's behavior, of course. Um, oftentimes, he would escape the house and sleep in a nearby cemetery just to escape. That's terrible. But a little creepy. <laughs> at 13. On May 4th, 1973, Mike shot and killed his wife in front of Richard during an argument, a domestic dispute. What? And He's Richard, like, hey, Richard, yeah. watch this. Like, I, I don't know if it was like, watch this. I think it was just... He, like, didn't fucking care. He didn't care who was there. He was going to kill his wife. Yeah. Oh, my he's, God. Richard is 13. How did he's I not seen know all this? this? <laughs> it's incredible. Mike would actually be found not guilty by reason of insanity, given his obvious PTSD. The guy has PTSD. Like, come on. The he, guy has PTSD. He caused his own PTSD by doing that heinous shit over in Vietnam. Well, if you're, like, exposed to something like that over and over again, like, he's exposing Richard. Like, you know he's what saying, I mean? this is okay. Like, this guy's doing it. Like, everything. It's fine. Like, like this he, is what like, is okay to do. Mike is so desensitized to it because of all the things that he probably witnessed and saw and then, and then eventually participated in. Yeah. That's the, like, what he was experiencing. Jesus. Like, you're going to be the odd man out. I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, what was that? Like, Full Metal Jacket? Yeah, I have. Like, Full Metal Jacket, right? Isn't that the one where he's, like, he asked that guy to shoot that girl or whatever and he wasn't going to do it? And they I were, think so, yeah. Yeah. <sighs> so, stuff like that. And I think Platoon was like that, too. Um, but yeah, it's like, you're, you're the odd person out if you don't participate, then That's it becomes awful. a part of that culture, like the culture of the men that you're serving with. Mm-hmm. So anyways, like I said, it's kind of that same, what is that? Like the abuse pattern? The, well, just the cycle of abuse, right? Mm-hmm. It's like you, you're abused by somebody or, and then you tend to abuse somebody else. Yeah. So it's kind of like that, but just. With highlighted, decapitated yeah, people, like heightened. <laughs> um, so actually, Mike would be admitted into the Texas State Mental Hospital. So that's where he was after he was let off for murdering his wife in Jeez. front of a thirteen-year-old. He should have at least gotten. Uh, well, I guess if it's reason of insanity, then he he wouldn't be convicted for anything. But at least child endangerment. Yeah. So after the shooting, Richard went to live with his sister Ruth and her husband Roberto. Okay. Roberto turned out to be a total fucking creep. Oh, great. <laughs> so, I was like, okay, sounds nice. He was actually an avid peeping Tom. Doesn't help the case. That's it's like so... the lamest crime to ever be <laughs> accused of. That's not true. That's, that's like, that's creepy. You know, it's terrifying. I'm just saying, but like. You're saying it's so 1950s he's, someone. It's so childish. <laughs> yeah, it you is know childish. What I mean? like, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. So he, yeah, he's, oh, 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 sorry, ankles. <laughs> Got an ankle. <laughs> um, he would actually take Richard sometimes on these little walkabouts. So, panty yeah. raids. Yep. So, <laughs> Dennis Panty Raider. <laughs> that was so funny. I didn't even realize that that was, like, a pun until I, I edited the episode. I was like, oh, my God, that was so much funnier than I, like, responded. I, <laughs> fi- I figured because you only went, ha-ha, like, yeah. <laughs> So, if anybody has listened to the BTK episode yet, or will probably by this point... Yeah, when I say that line, just, I'm sure you left your reaction in there. Oh, I did, for okay, sure. Okay, you're just, <laughs> Yeah, I was like, oh, ha. Oh, ha. Anyway. 
<laughs> no, <laughs> I definitely did not either. give that enough credit. That was hilarious. <laughs> Thanks. I'm kind of funny. Anyway, so Richard and Roberto, they would um, walk around peeping Tommy things or whatever. And um, peeping Tommy. Peeping Tommy. Like peep, it's a verb. Peep Tomming. <laughs> peep Tommy. Peep Tommy. <laughs> They would walk around, peep tomming. Anyway. <laughs> uh, I don't know what would be the verb of that. Peeping? Oh, they, okay. So they'd walk around the neighborhood peeping. <laughs> so, so, peep tomming. Well, if you say peeping, that doesn't really... Yeah, that sounds bad. You could just be peering, not necessarily peeping. It's true. Tomming. So coinciding with this, Richard and Roberto would bond over their use of LSD. How old is Richard? 14. No. He's 14 and he's abusing LSD with his So he's melting his brain that's not even fully developed yet. By the time 1977 rolled around, Mike was released from the mental hospital and began to join the two on their walks around the neighborhood, spying on unsuspecting women's. What a great couple of guys. I know. Just real stand-up dudes. Just the (laughs) honorable-as-fuck trio. So the more that Richard's LSD usage became more and more severe, he began to read things about Satanism and the occult. So he was just like, Satan is the best, I'm a Satanist. Okay. Richard's violent tendencies began to grow, and while still in high school, he began working at a local hotel. Richard would use this, uh, like, key cards to gain access to travelers' rooms and rob them in the night, which is awful, but kind of a funny, like, image in my head that he's, like, using the key cards and it's, like, dark as fuck, and he's just, like, crawling on the ground and, like, stealing (laughs) things from people and then crawling out, you know? It's literally like that episode of Spongebob where they go on a panty raid. I'm telling you, it's like... They go on a panty raid in Spongebob? In Spongebob. They steal Mrs. Puff's underwear <laughs> uh, in one episode. Can you believe that no? shit? The 90s. That's a creep of <laughs> Richard Ramirez. So, well, it's just, it, it's interesting because of the connection that Mike would make with, like, what he was making with Mike's experiences, like, where he would, like, sneak into the villages or camps. Mm-hmm. Isn't that creepy? So that's where it starts. So he's not um, original at all. No, he's not, he's not OG. He learned this. So, his crimes began to escalate pretty quickly working here at this hotel. He had actually inappropriately touched two children in an elevator, but was it was never reported by the children. What the fuck? He just admitted to it, like, much later. Yeah. On one occasion, he tried to rape a woman while she slept. Her husband entered the room and found Richard on top of her. The husband beat Richard violently at Let's the scene. Go. LOL. <laughs> The couple would actually drop charges, however, because they they weren't from El Paso. They were just, they were travelers. They didn't live here. They did not want to come back to the state just to confront this fucker. I don't blame them. Yeah, I don't either. As long as, especially since he didn't, like, succeed in anything that he was really doing. True. Um, of course, he was fired oh, from his job. was he? <laughs> oh, was he? Oh, great. So that was all throughout high school, okay? So Richard dropped out of high school in the ninth grade. Actually, it wasn't all in high school. He's only like, like 15 at this point? Ew. Yeah. Um, it wouldn't be an age until age 22 that he would actually move to California permanently. At this time, Richard began using cocaine regularly. He would burglarize homes and apartments to support his habit. His first known victim, meaning murder victim, Mm-hmm was a nine-year-old girl. What? She was lured into a basement away from her brother. They were, like, walking down the street. Lured into the basement, probably, like, 
I got candy or something. Or it was, it was something like she was looking for her dog or looking mm-hmm. for something. And he was like, oh, it's down here. Just follow me. Yeah. Took her to, took her into the basement. Um, and then she was sexually assaulted before he stabbed her to death. Oh my With God. a pocket knife. Oh my God. Which is brutal. Awful. Um, but this would be his first victim in a one year long spree. One year. Oh, my God. So we're going to go over the next year, y'all. Damn. His next victim was 73-year-old Jeannie Venkow. She was found stabbed to death in her apartment. A fingerprint was actually left behind on the window that Richard used to access the apartment. Fucking dumbass. So this was June of 1984. That that one was. In March of 1985, so Mm -hmm. almost a year, Ramirez followed 22-year-old Maria Hernandez into her garage as she parked her car. Ramirez fired a 22 at Maria, striking her in the face. Oh, my God. However, Maria did not die. When she had lifted her hands to defend herself, the bullet actually ricocheted off of her car keys, and it saved her life. Oh, my God. <clears throat> Although she was hit by the bullet. Um, she laid there, and she played dead in the garage, and Ramirez walked past her uh, to access the home. Maria's roommate, Dale Okazaki, had actually heard the shot in the garage and went to investigate. And when she came around the corner into the kitchen area, she saw Ramirez entering the residence. So she ducked behind a countertop um, in the kitchen so she could remain out of sight. Mm -hmm. So she stayed there for a while, and she didn't really hear anything. So Dale decided to peek up over the countertop to see if Richard was still in the kitchen. When she lifted her head, Ramirez had already taken aim, shooting Dale into the forehead, and she died instantly. Isn't that, like, the creepiest fucking scenario you've ever heard? He was like he knew he so had... quiet, and he literally just stood there and waited for her to look, and he was ready. That is so fucking scary. Isn't that terrifying? Like he waited. He had all the time in the world. He didn't care. That is so fucking scary. Oh my gosh, it's terrifying. I can't get that out of my head. Yeah. Like imagine that you think he's think gone like... because it's so quiet, and, and just... you just peek your head up, and then you're just gone. Like lights the fuck out. After ransacking the house and fleeing the scene, Ramirez happened upon 30-year-old Sai Lian Wu waiting at a stoplight. He pulled her from her car, shot her twice, and then fled the scene. Pulled her from her car. Shot her twice, and then fled the scene. On foot. Idiot. Like, why wouldn't he just take her car? Yeah, what the fuck? Well, do you think that the whole point of pulling her out of her car and then, like, shooting her is to steal the car, but no, he just ran. Like, there's he no He just point. wanted to kill her. He just wanted to kill her. What the fuck? Sai Lian, unfortunately, would not survive that attack. Word got around that these two crimes were re- related, essentially, because of the proximity of the crime mm-hmm. scenes. And the police with the media um, had said to be on the lookout for the attacker, attacker described by Maria, because um, she did survive. So Maria described the attacker as a man with curly hair, bulging eyes, and with wide-spaced, rotting teeth. Oh, yeah, he had halitosis. Did you know that? No, I didn't. He's a fucking disgusting fuck. That's a... If anyone doesn't know what halitosis is, it's chronic bad breath. His breath always fucking stank. I'm sure he never, like, was taught how to brush his fucking teeth. You know, what is he, like, 12 right now? He's fucking disgusting. (laughs) It's just... just He looks dirty. That that image, though, because when when I read it and it said, like, wide-spaced, rotting teeth, like... It's awful. Ugh. Like, it just, I don't know, it's just, like, 
one of my biggest like creepy things is facial distortion. So like to think of like somebody with like a really big yeah. smile is like ugh. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking creepy. It's creepy. So he was dubbed the walk-in killer and the valley intruder. The walk-in killer? The walk-in killer. Just because he just walks in. Just walking in and... Just walking in places, I guess. Because he just walked in. I don't know. The walk-in killer. I wonder if it's just because it was just at the garage and then the kitchen was attached to the garage. So it's like right there. Just I wonder if it's in. just walked in. But then bang, what about the lady in the bang, car? Bang, bang. I don't know. He just walked... I mean, he walked away after that. The valley intruder. <laughs> It's the asphyxiator. It's nothing, it's nothing like the asphyxiator, though. The asphyxiator. That's, so, the the valley intruder? The valley intruder, or the walk-in killer, was what he was dubbed by the media. Hmm. So, ten days later, on March 27th, 1985, Ramirez planned to enter a house that he had robbed one year prior. He immediately shot and killed 64-year-old Vincent Zazara, when his wife Maxine awoke from the noise, Ramirez bound her hands together and demanded that she tell him where all the valuables were in the house. Mm-hmm. Um, as he was ransacking the house, Maxine actually freed herself from the restraints and Bad received alert. right and received a uh, shotgun from underneath the the bed. Extra bad bitch alert. Okay. Hearing all this commotion from the other room, Ramirez returned to the room only to be met by the business end of a shotgun. Let's go. However, the gun was not loaded. Out of sheer anger, he shot Maxine several times before mutilating her body. He was that mad at her. Did she try to pull the trigger and he found out it wasn't? Oh my god, that's so scary. Yeah. Imagine like having a weapon and then pulling the trigger and it doesn't work for you. That is so scary. He was so mad that he took her eyes out of her head, put them in a jewelry box, which he kept as a trophy. Yeah. Her eyeballs. Her eyeballs. What does that have to do with her putting it? It's just cruel. Her trying to defend herself made you mad? Yeah. Hmm, that's weird. I'm sure you fucking murdering her husband and tying her up and breaking into her house made her pretty fucking mad. Yeah. At least this was all postmortem, honestly. Jesus, that's awful. So, unfortunately, um, Peter, the couple's son, was the one to find them deceased the next day, which is the most heartbreaking part, I think. The police were able to collect a shoe print from the front yard's flower bed, and it was um, determined that it was an Avia sneaker, an Avia brand. They also matched uh, some of the bullets at the crime scene to the two other crime scenes, the Maria's crime scene and then uh, um, Cylian. Ramirez's next victims were Bill and Lillian Doy. On May 14th, 1985, Ramirez broke into their home in the middle of the night, and after shooting her husband, Lillian was cuffed, raped, and beaten. She would survive the attack, but unfortunately, Bill would not. May 29th, Maybill Bell and Florence Lang, who were two sisters, aged 83 and 81, um, they were sleeping in their shared house. Ramirez found a hammer in the house and bludgeoned Florence as she slept. After the beating, he did the same to Mabel and actually electrocuted her with a nearby exposed wire. What the fuck? Isn't that incredible? Like, like I said, he's just a monster. Like, no, he just absolutely. thinks of things and does them. He That's, actually... Sorry, that is so sick. He grabbed one of the lady's lipsticks and would draw pentagrams on their bodies and on the walls before leaving the house. The women were found two days later alive. What? You want to talk about a bad bitch alert. What? Yep. Mabel and Florence, they're they're the heroes. Both of them? Both of them. In their 80s. Found alive two days After later. After being bludgeoned 
electrocuted. And electro... Oh my gosh. Bad bitches alert. Seriously. <laughs> um, however, unfortunately, Mabel would eventually succumb to her injuries. Oh her God, injuries were too so severe. Awful. But that's just incredible. Like, she... Like, she survived maybe... For two days. Like, a week, honestly, because it was, like, days later that she passed in the hospital. That's insane. Imagine living, like, 80 years on this fucking planet, and then some dickhead decides that it's your time to go. Like, fuck you. The day after the women were beaten, Ramirez drove to the home of Carol Kyle, where her and her 11-year-old son lived. He broke into the house, bound the two, put her child in a closet, and proceeded to sexually assault her. He told her many times during the attack to not look at him, and if she continued to, he would, quote, cut her eyes out and take them with him. Which we know he's done. Yeah. So I don't think it's an idle threat. When he was done with the assault, he tied the mother and son together and then fled the scene. So he beat her up a little bit, but he didn't murder either of them, especially not the kid. That's odd that he, like, will go in and, like, murder two people for no reason and not sexually assault them, and then sometimes he'll sexually assault someone and just dip. Yeah. You know, or sometimes he'll just murder someone and dip. Well, like, he's clearly not above murdering a nine-year-old. Yeah. So, like, you know, to leave a 12-year-old completely unharmed, it's just unusual. It's very strange. Maybe it has to deal with the fact that he's a boy. Maybe he identifies with that. Yeah. You know? On July 2nd, he entered the home of 75-year-old Mary Louise Cannon. She was beaten and stabbed to death with her own kitchen knife. On July 5th, 1985, Ramirez broke into a home and began to bludgeon and beat a 16-year-old girl named Whitney Bennett with a tire iron. When he looked for another weapon to finish the attack, specifically a knife, um, he grabbed a telephone cable and to his surprise, after wrapping it around her neck and attempting to strangle her, the wire actually began to spark while it was around her neck. The fact that Whitney seemed to have found even more strength and to start to fight back at this point, Ramirez fled the scene, believing that Jesus has had intervened and saved Whitney from dying. What? Like, essentially, he thought that he, like, she couldn't be killed. Yeah. So although um, Whitney would survive the attack, she did require 478 stitches to her head from the tire iron. Holy shit. Isn't that incredible? 478. But she survived. Damn. Because she, she, yeah, bad bachelor. She fucking fought back. Ramirez broke into 60-year-old Joyce Nelson's house on July 7th, 1985. Just like two days later. Oh, these are like bam, 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 bam. You would talk about bam, 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 bam. These are bam, 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 bam. So yeah, this is two days later. I think it's like, yeah, if you're listening to the dates, it's like two days, two days, two days. Sometimes in the same day. This is kind of brutal. He actually kicked Joyce Nelson to death, literally. Like, stomped on her to death, which is oh awful. Oh, my God. But then they they matched the shoe prints. They had shoe prints on her body that would match an avia shoe. Actually not satisfied with this, Ramirez started looking for another victim on the same day. He broke into the house of 63-year-old Sophie Dickman. He bound her, beat her, sexually assaulted her, but he didn't kill her. He made her swear on Satan that she had told him where all of her valuables were in the house, and then fled. It's kind of odd. Swear on Satan. July 20th, 1985, Ramirez per- purchased a machete before deciding on the house of Maxon and Leela Knitting, an elderly couple that lived in Glendale. He slashed at them with the machete and eventually shot both of them. He did continue to mutilate the bodies even after death. Once again, not satisfied with this, 
at approximately 4.15 a.m., he entered another home. This is like the three in the same day now. Yeah. Well, within 24 hours, for sure. This home belonged to Chanarag Kanavanath, some kid Kanavanath, and their eight-year-old son. After shooting Chenarong, killing him instantly, he repeatedly beat and raped Samkim, but eventually stole valuables and then left. He did not harm the child. Um, both mother and son would survive. Yeah. On August 6th, Ramirez entered the home of Chris and Virginia Peterson, where he shot Virginia in the head. However, when he went to shoot Chris, Chris was struck by a bullet in the neck, but managed to dodge two more shots while fighting off the attacker. Dodged? Dodged. Damn. I mean, I'm sure it's like, you know, they're yeah. struggling and whatever. Um, so eventually, like, I guess it's two more shots went off, but neither of them managed to hit Chris because wow. of the fight. Um, Ramirez would flee the scene, and fortunately, the couple were able to survive. Both of them? Yes. Wow. The next victims that were attacked just two days later on August 8th were Elias Abawath and Sakita Abawath and their three-year-old who was sleeping. Um... When Ramirez entered their home, you know, they were all asleep. He shot the father, and similar to his other attacks, he assaulted Sakina, but left her and her child alive. August 18th, Ramirez attacked a sleeping couple, Peter, 66, and Barbara, 62. Pan was their last name. Peter Pan. Oh. <laughs> Peter was shot first and would not survive the attack. Barbara was shot, but she did survive. At this crime scene, police located um another set of footprints that matched all the other prints so we've known um for a while like um we've been detailing these crimes i've been detailing these crimes and we really haven't talked much about the investigation but uh -huh. at this point in the background with all this stuff going on detectives know that they have a serial killer um and they are hot on ramirez's trail they do know his description and they know the size of shoe he was wearing and what kind of shoes he were wearing they had actually determined at this point that there were only a few locations locally that carried that specific shoe in oh. that specific size. So they were already kind of... Narrowing Yeah, they're coming up on this. And not only that, but they were also in constant communication with the media. So they figured that Ramirez was probably watching. So Ramirez also knows these things. On August 24th, 13-year-old James Romero was up late in his house. Probably normal teenager uh -huh. stuff. Um, walking around the house, probably eating snacks, watching TV. He went to the family car to retrieve something from it, and while he was out there, he heard rustling in the bushes nearby the house. Oh my god, that is so terrifying. Thinking this was an animal, he went to investigate, but he saw nothing when he checked the bush. Checking the car door handle again, he realized the car was locked, so he head back, headed back inside. Um, whether or not he decided to not go back outside because he was, like, creeped out, or, like, maybe he was like, oh, whatever, I'll just get the thing tomorrow. Either way, he, he didn't go back outside. While inside for a while, though, he heard something else outside. When he went to go look through his bedroom window, he saw Ramirez standing in the yard. <laughs> oh my gosh. I thought you were going to say that he was, like, standing on, like, the second story huh? roof. Like, right outside as well. <laughs> <laughs> ding, 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 yeah. Ding. Oh my gosh. <laughs> James immediately notified his parents, saying that there was a prowler outside looking to break in, is what he thought. His parents quickly got up and scared off Ramirez by making a bunch of noise or shouting out the windows and stuff. Um, but not before James actually chased him, the 13-year-old. Chased him, like, within a certain distance. You don't want to fuck with this guy, bro. Right. So he chased him, um, but he mostly to take note of the man's description, his clothing, the make and model of the car, as well as the license plate number. What a 
badass. I know, at 13? That's awesome. He, he saved his whole fucking family, bro. No, like a hella fucking, like, just doing the damn thing. James Romero. Hella proactive. So we all know Richard at this point, right? We know he's not afraid to commit multiple crimes in one night. Yeah, what the fuck? And in fact, it's kind of part of his MO at certain times. So Richard entered the home of Bill Carnes and his fiance Inez Erickson. He shot Bill three times while he slept. He told Inez, I am the night stalker. Swear to Satan that you love him. That you love Satan or that you love the night stalker? That you love Satan. He dragged her throughout the house, collecting valuables and assaulting her. Before leaving the residence, he said, quote, tell them I'm the night stalker and I was here, end quote. He's so fucking narcissistic. He's like BTK all over again. Here's yeah. a list of the names you can call me. I am the night stalker. I'm the Tell night them stalker. that the night stalker was here. I am the night. Fuck you. I'm not going to tell them shit. The couple would um, survive, by the way. They both tell survived. them some pussy ass bitch was here. <laughs> tell them the night stalker was here. <laughs> So, Inez was actually able to give a very detailed description of Ramirez, and based on the proximity to the Romero's house, because it happened in the same night, mm-hmm. they knew that the Night Stalker had to be in the area, like, then. We're, do we even call him the Night Stalker? Do we give him that? I don't think we should give him that. Okay, we won't give him that. We should call He's him just... the halitosis <laughs> hangman. <laughs> halitosis. Yeah, okay. <laughs> we should call him the bad breath burglar. <laughs> <laughs> The Tums Intruder. (laughs) Oh, God. The car Ramirez used um, in the Romero and the Carnes Erickson case was actually found abandoned nearby. So, like, police knew that they were around, right? They're closing in. Just follow follow the the trail of the bad press. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, he's close. The Stinky Strangler. (laughs) The Stinky Stabber. That's what it was. The Stinky stinky Stabber. Stinky Strangler. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, okay. So police were actually able to retrieve a fingerprint from the car. And they found the Amanda car. What? Do you have another one? I got bad, bad breath burglar, triple B. <laughs> Call me BBB. Call me triple B. <laughs> B cubed. B cubed. I don't know why I thought it. Okay, go. So... so. <laughs> Police were able to retrieve a fingerprint from the car, the stolen car, um, that was used in the crimes. Oh, and did they have a fingerprint from the win- from the window, right, of the yes, other house? Okay, they sure did. So using this print, police were actually able to match it out of Texas at this point, because new technology had come out in just the last few months. So they could match it to any state? So now this is, yeah, now this is a nationwide database that wow. they had just come up with. So police were able to match it out of Texas to a Richard Ramirez. Oh, interesting. So at this time, I don't wait, know if but that's not the killer. Like... The killer's name is the Night Stalker. It's oh, not wait, <laughs> couldn't possibly be couldn't him. Possibly be him. For those of you that have been doing the math on the years, um, Richard is just twenty-five years old at this point. Oh my god! Like he's a kid, literally. So it just so happened that the fingerprint print print. <laughs> it just just so happened that the fingerprint database was. Uh, like, a, the whole, like, for um, keeping records of, like, children's records or, or even uh, criminal records, that that process hadn't started until 1960, um, January of 1960. Oh, okay. So, literally just, like, two months before Richard was born. Wow. Isn't that incredible? So, like, that's how they have, like, his... It's just... It, it's crazy that that's when it was established. It just so happened to be that his whole life, it's always pretty much been a thing. Yeah. That, like, they would keep fingerprints. 
the criminal database was actually updated recently to include um, not only that, like nationwide searches, but the computer generated auto searches uh-huh. instead of just everything by hand where it takes forever. Yeah. So literally they got these results within a few days. Nice. So they knew it was Richard Ramirez. So of course they blasted all over like media. Like, <laughs> they're just like, this is this dude. If you see this dude, he's highly dangerous, you know, all this shit. So he stinks. <laughs> he stinks. He's got a weird ass smile. Um, I don't think he really ever smiled. Um, so anyways, spotted just a few days later, uh, after the car was found, Ramirez was essentially evading police. Like somebody thought that they saw him. The police came to that area. He was already fleeing. Yeah. All this stuff. Anyways, just through that commotion alone, citizens started literally seeing him down the street and we're like that's that guy that's that guy yeah, that's that like, guy recognizable as fuck and so people were essentially chasing after him down that's the street really like cool like he's frankenstein's monster and everybody has like pitchforks and like <laughs> torches and so they're chasing after him um and eventually when he was caught by these citizens they held him down they beat the shit out of him hell yeah somebody hit him over the head with a pipe good <laughs> like just nutsness and so they held him until the police came to get him right just taking his eyeballs which is yeah right it's pretty in, it's a pretty interesting story um police arrived and took him into custody um i won't go into the court proceedings it's pretty cut and dry uh he admitted to a lot of these murders and incidents so he was convicted found guilty of 13 counts of murder five counts of attempted murder, 11 counts of sexual assault, and 14 counts of burglary. I didn't realize that his, his killings was such in such a short amount of time. I yeah, didn't realize it was only a year. I thought it was like a few, like at least three. Yeah. Something like that. I didn't realize it was literally from 94 to 95. Yeah. He was sentenced to 19 counts of, of the death sentence. Wow. Yeah. Which is kind of <laughs> like... i kill you 19 times. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So a psychiatric evaluation concluded that Ramirez had a schizo- schizoid personality disorder because he had been knocked out, not, literally knocked unconscious several times before the age of six, that that contributed to his aggression and his hypersexuality. And that's all I thanks mean, to Julian. Yeah. Makes thanks, sense. Julian. Thanks, Dad. Yeah, for real. Richard would never see his execution day, however. On June 7th, 2013, Richard Ramirez died of complications with lymphoma and hep C. He had halitosis. I'm telling you, it yeah. probably made him sick. <laughs> he probably did. He probably did. He probably had a bunch of fucking abscesses or like fucking, um, Ugh. like bacterial infections in his mouth. Yeah. You know, like gingivitis and mm-hmm. shit. <sighs> so that's the story of Richard Ramirez. I mean, have you forgotten about the Cecil yet? Yeah, I have actually. <laughs> So why is this tied to Richard Ramirez? Yeah, what the hell? Because during the entire time that Richard Ramirez was committing these awful murders, he called the Cecil home. No. That's where he would rest his head at night. Wow. So that's... He's just in the middle of all this carnage and like, this bullshit in this place. Oh my so, gosh. Oftentimes, um, tenants would complain to staff because Richard would return to the Cecil covered in blood. Tenants and staff would recollect him walking around in his underwear and socks because he would walk down to the dumpsters, throw his clothes in it, and then walk upstairs. Sometimes naked as well. And they were like, cool? He lived on the 14th floor and he paid $14 a night. 
That is so crazy that that ties together. I was totally, I wasn't even thinking about that anymore. You're right. I was like, oh, Richard Ramirez. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So believe it or not, this would not be the only serial killer to grace the Cecil with their presence. Jack Unterweger was an Austrian killer who came to LA as a writer for an Austrian paper at the time that he was working. He had already killed seven women back home and his MO was strangling uh, sex work victims with their own bras. Oh, my God. He came to L.A. to write about the difference in U.S. crime rates versus Austrian crime rates, which is interesting. He's, like, adding to it. So he wanted the best research as possible, so that's why he checked into the Cecil. There he would kill three sex workers over uh, the time that he stayed there, each garroted with their own bras. Jesus. Jack Underweger would eventually be caught, and he was extradited back to Austria, where he would be found guilty of a total of 11 murders. Wow. The night of his sentencing, however, Jack took his own life in his jail cell. He hung himself. Oh, poor baby. You got time for one more? Yeah. It's kind of like ghost stories. 21-year-old Elisa Lam was traveling um, as a Canadian student. She was the daughter of of Hong Kong immigrants. In 2012, Elisa had begun to post on her blog that she was struggling with mental illnesses, saying that she, in her mind, had recently, quote-unquote, relapsed. Um, not on, but relapsed yeah. mentally. And that she felt, quote, utterly directionless and lost, end quote. She was also posting things like, quote, you always feel haunted by the idea that you're wasting your life, end quote. So this is in 2012. Elisa had dropped several classes because of her struggles with her depression, and she was looking to do something a little different before getting back into school for the new year. During this time, however, she fell into a really deep depression and started experiencing hallucinations in which she would often hide under her bed out of fear. Oh my gosh. Which is awful. I can't imagine that. After these episodes, um, several of these episodes, she was actually sent to a hospital where she was diagnosed with bipolar disorder as well as depression. She was prescribed medication and it seemed to be working for her pretty well. Um, She decided to take a trip before heading back to school for spring. So she decided to travel to San Diego and the California area. She visited the zoo, uh, San Diego Zoo, um, blogging about her experience the whole way throughout this time. On January 26th of 2013, she arrived in L.A., and two days later, she would check into the Cecil. Oh, no. At this time, there was a student program going on um, that would house several students in one room, kind of like a hostel. Mm -hmm. And then they would have those shared bathrooms and things like that. And it was also for a cheaper price. Elisa was assigned to one of these rooms with many people, like a few other people. However, her roommates would begin to complain about Elisa's strange and erratic behavior. Elisa would lock the room, like, when everybody would leave, and then she would refuse to open the door to anybody that didn't, like, she would ask them random questions, or they would have to have a password, like a, like a child. Mm-hmm. Like, what's the password? And they were like, okay, it's kind of funny, but, like, all my shit's in there. Can I get in my room? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I wonder if, what the questions were. I wonder if it was like a vetting thing. Like she didn't trust who was coming in and out of the yeah. room. Like she didn't trust that it was one of her roommates. Um, she would also leave, Elisa would leave odd notes in their belongings or like on their beds saying things like go home or go away. So very strange around like, behavior. That sounds like schizophrenia. Right? Doesn't it? And keep in mind, she's only 21 right now, so that might be what was happening. After two days of this, Elisa was actually moved to a private room by herself because mm-hmm. of the complaints. 
Another few days later, she was actually escorted and removed from a live taping of a show where she was an audience member, and she caused such a disturbance that they actually had to remove her from the premises. What? So this was just a few days after she got her own private yeah. room. Yeah. Elisa typically called her parents in British Columbia every day since she had began her vacation in California as she was traveling alone. However, her parents didn't hear anything from her on January 31st. And this is 2013. By the next day, which was February 1st, her parents had called LAPD to report that her daughter, that their daughter was missing. They then made the trip from British Columbia to LA to aid in the search of their daughter because they knew it was very unusual for her not to call. At this point, she hadn't checked out of her hotel room either. She was supposed to check out February 1st morning, and huh. they checked, and all of her things were in the room. So they're like, okay, clearly she's missing. Mm -hmm. You know, she's not here. Um, she hasn't called. She's not checked out. So it, it was a problem. So police and family members started canvassing the local area, and there was actually a local bookstore owner that remembers seeing Elisa in her store the day of January 31st. The shop owner remembered her because she said Elisa was very enthusiastic about purchasing gifts for her family and that she couldn't wait to get back home to show off all the goodies that she got. So, you know, of course, there's it's something to remember her, uh -huh. her by, you know, like, oh, you're from British Columbia. Wow, that's pretty far. What are you doing out here? You know, things like that. So she really remembered Elisa. Search dogs were called and uh, into the hotel, but little was found. There'd be like kind of trails and then nothing and then kind of trails and then nothing. Sergeant Rudy Lopez said that there wasn't much that they could do about any, like, about the search unless a dog had indicated that they could go, like, into the hotel room. So when asked by media, oh, did you search every room? He's like, well, no, because that's people's private areas. And unless a dog, like, essentially marks or indicates, mm -hmm. I yeah. guess, um, there wouldn't be probable cause. So, you know, plus this is 700 rooms. Yeah. <laughs> so at this point, almost... Um, a week had gone by, and Elisa's family and local authorities started outsourcing to the media and produced missing persons flyers around the neighborhood. After a few weeks since Elisa's disappearance, LAPD released footage of the last known moments of Elisa. Do you remember this? No, I don't think so. Oh, wait, hold on. In the, in the elevator? Oh, yeah, I remember this. It was a video taken from an elevator in which we see Elisa disappear displaying very strange and bizarre behavior. The elevator doors open. Elisa walks in casually into the elevator. She bends over and gets extremely close to the elevator buttons. She begins at first to hit a few buttons and then begins to hit all of them in order. The elevator door tries to close, but maybe only about an inch before staying open. It hangs open for another five seconds before Elisa approaches the open doorway, quickly sticks out her head and looks left and right. Then she goes back into the elevator. She then backs into the corner of the elevator like she's hiding from someone or something. She waits another few seconds before approaching the door again. This time she almost hops out, of, out into the hallway as if to startle someone. She does a four-square movement after this, takes one step to the left, one step backwards, almost back into the elevator, a step to the right, and then a step forward out of the elevator once again. At this point, she shuffles all the way to the left of the outside of the elevator, so you kind of can't really see her. She's kind mm -hmm. of out of frame. She then begins to raise her hands over her head, possibly resting her hands on the back of her head. She stands there for another few seconds. Keeping in mind, like, keep in mind that the elevator door has not shut. Yeah. Which is very unusual. Very unusual. Because... There's no one in it. There's, there's nobody no in it. In the there's nobody in the doorway. She's outside of the elevator at this point. 
The door remains open. And all the, not only that, but she hit all the buttons. Shouldn't yeah. it be going somewhere? Mm-hmm. So she gets back in the elevator. She has her hands up. She then begins to hit the buttons again, all in order one more time. She steps outside of the elevator once more, and at this time, she begins kind of manipulating her hands and her arms as if she's talking to someone or pleading with someone, but she's definitely moving her hands around like she's expressing herself in some way mm-hmm. to someone. Um, it looks like a full-on conversation. This lasts for a solid 40 seconds. So if you time 40 seconds in your head, it's pretty long. Mm-hmm. Elisa walks out of frame at this point. Another 30 seconds goes by with her nowhere near the door until the elevator door actually starts to finally close slowly. After 30 seconds. 30 seconds. Like 30 full-on seconds. Not including the 40 seconds where she's already off of the elevator expressing her, waving her hands. So that's like over a minute and a half long that this door has just been open. 15 seconds later, the elevator door slowly opens to no one. 10 seconds later, it closes once more. It intervals like this once more. 10 seconds open, 10 seconds closed, until the video ends. That's it. So that, assuming that the end of the video is the elevator going to each floor, you can't see it moving up and down, obviously, because the camera's inside of it. So it's opening oh, that's true. on each floor. Closing, Shit, I didn't even think about that. Opening, closing, and then going down, open, or whatever. I didn't even. It's not just at a a standstill. That makes so much sense. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like a dummy. It's funny. I didn't even think about that because that's the whole like thing is that you think that this door is like, oh my god, you're so smart. (laughs) Internet sleuths, did you just hear it kind of crack the case? (laughs) Well, because another thing they won't talk about is what floor she was on. They won't release Mm -hmm. that information. And she seemingly like is talking to someone but you don't ever see anyone else but she's clearly like startled or like uncomfortable or uneasy at yeah. some point the video is really eerie though, it is definitely and it's out there the whole video is out there it's like the ring shit like it's like if you don't share this in seven days you will die yeah like right. it's really creepy it's super unnerving so the hotel meanwhile is still in operation through all this time searching for elisa so within this time frame, tenants are actually becoming increasingly concerned about some issues they were experiencing with the tap water in the building. So some had complained of weak water pressure. Others had complained about odd tastes, odors, or smells. Um, odors and smells are the same thing. But color as well, that the color was off. On February 19th, three weeks after Elise's disappearance, a maintenance worker climbed the ladder to the roof in order to inspect the water tank because of these complaints. Mm. This water tank provides water for all residents, the kitchen, and the coffee shop that is attached to the hotel. Inside the water tank, the maintenance worker found Elisa Lamb's body. She had been there for three weeks at this point, since the police could confirm that she was wearing the exact same clothes as the video in the elevator. The Emmy reported that there was no signs of trauma to the body, no sexual assault, and no obvious signs of suicide. Tox reports confirmed that Elisa had minimal amounts of prescription drugs in her system, but the those were consistent with her normal doses of medication. She did have an uh, at least one alcoholic drink, maybe two, sometime during the day, as her blood alcohol content was 0. 0.02, so mm-hmm. un- way underneath the legal limit, but she clearly did have some alcohol. Investigators did, however, say that the prescription medication amount was so small that it might, like, she might have been undercutting her medication, so she probably wasn't taking the full dose. The Emmy report would reflect that Elisa had died from drowning, so, how did she get up there? Uh-huh. All doors and stairways that could have accessed the roof are, um, you only can access them with a key card or a password. 
any uh, forcing any of those doors would cause an emergency alarm to go off um, for like a fire exit. But at this time, you can actually access the outside fire escape without triggering any alarms through a window. A dog had found Elisa's scent at the end of this specific hallway, but the dog did not alert the fire escape itself. Don't really know how sniffing dogs work. Maybe it was wind or maybe she wasn't mm-hmm. there long enough to really get a scent. And it is on the side of a fucking building. So this may uh, be how she got access to the roof, but how did she get in there? Because surely the water tanks that supply all of the water for the hotel would have a pretty heavy lid on it just to keep the water protected from bird shit or whatever it is. But according to Google Maps, accessed while the search for Elisa was still going on, you could clearly see that water tank lids were open on two of the four tanks. This is the Google Maps area. And this is before Elisa was found. So somebody was doing just like an aerial view And um, it just so happened that these little snippets or screenshots or whatever had tanks open. So clearly they had their tanks open, which was gross because, yeah. Wasn't she found with the lid completely closed then? That was a rumor. Yeah, that was apparently a rumor. The maintenance worker said that when he found her, he just looked in. He didn't, there wasn't a cover over it. So she might have fallen in. How she actually got in there, though, is still a mystery because even the maintenance worker required a ladder in order to get up there to look in. So how she got in there is still kind of a mystery. Although the Emmy had determined that Elisa's cause of death was drowning, police and detectives have not officially closed her case. Because Elisa was in such a deep state of decomposition, they haven't ruled out foul play completely. Uh Elisa's family decided to sue the Cecil Hotel for failing to protect Elisa by allowing access to the fire escape. The Cecil denied any wrongdoing, saying they couldn't possibly predict the circumstances and the likelihood that someone would be able to access the tank in normal circumstances are very slim, which is kind of true. Uh The case was eventually dismissed. On June 13th, 2015, a 28-year-old man was found outside the hotel. Another person had either fallen or jumped to their death. He has not been identified and the case is still open. In 2011, the Cecil, in an effort to distance themselves from their past, would change their name to the Stay on Main, although the original marquee still remains. (laughs) Happy Halloween! (laughs) That's crazy. That's my story, y'all. Wow. I definitely was not expecting any of that to come full circle like it did. Um, The Cecil, I knew a little bit about it, not a lot. Uh, I knew a little bit about Richard Ramirez, not a lot. And I've definitely heard that Elisa story told on another podcast. But yeah, definitely uh, cool to hear it from like another perspective as well, because um, that video is very eerie. So if you haven't seen that video, you can definitely Google uh, the ele- elevator video. It's it's pretty crazy. Just definitely look at it and, and try to, you know, decipher it for yourself, I yeah. guess. <laughs> but it's very unnerving to watch. I just think what's really interesting about this whole case in general about the Cecil Hotel is that so many different kinds of people from different places. It's almost like when you read it like that, it's almost like what makes people so drawn to this place? Yeah, exactly. Like, is it because it's kind of seedier? Is it because like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. is it the overall like depressive nature of it? It's like vintage or whatever. I mean, or... even um, American Horror Story Hotel is based off Cecil. Mm-hmm. I mean, and it's got this very like, just a creepy feel, you know? Yeah. Um, so I don't know, is it is it that that makes people kind of go insane or feel more depressed or or is it just a fucking portal to hell? Like yeah. we don't, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, so I definitely wanted to tie in some of that like haunted house kind of story ish spookiness. 
plus also serial killers because that's what we do. And then just talking about, like, honestly, people's mental states because it seemed, I mean, especially, you know, I get Great Depression, duh, it's in the name, but people were so desperate during that time yeah. and it's just like that's when it kind of kicked off and then it just kind of never stopped. Yeah. It's just really interesting. Definitely. And uh, about Richard Ramirez, like, I think that... Every, it had everything to do with what he was exposed to as a child, like, oh, how sure. he turned out. Um, that's absolutely awful uh, that he was exposed to all of that as a kid. Definitely not excusing what he did as an adult with his cousin and then with uh, when he went with his aunt and then she had her husband or whatever and even his dad. Like, he just had, like, the really, really shittiest end of the stick uh, coming to, like, how he was being raised and stuff. Uh, so that was awful. But again, I, I didn't know that his crimes were, were so short. And I definitely didn't know how young he was when he was caught and all that stuff. Yeah. Definitely also just want to pepper this in as well, since we did talk a lot about um, self-harm and suicide earlier in the episode. Um, it's always in our synopsis of the episode, but I just want to put it here. You can actually call a new uh, suicide and crisis line that they've recently put into place. It's a, a national suicide lifeline. And the number is 988. Rather than dialing 911, you would dial 988. Uh, that's actually able to be texted as well. And there's also like an instant chat um, option as well on online if you'd rather message or text someone um, about it. But definitely share that with your friends. Uh, definitely know you're not alone. And of course, we put the Trevor Project and the National Suicide Hotline number in our info every time. But yeah, that was a awesome case. Thank you for bringing that. I was really excited. I'm glad that we're doing these like longer, like more in depth cases. Me I already too. know what I'm gonna do next, so I'm really excited about I'm that. Excited. Uh, you guys uh, definitely have been awesome. You know, keeping up with the the downloads of the episodes, and we've definitely been seeing like a a trend. People listen to us all over the world, which is pretty cool. <laughs> uh, so, thanks for all the support, y'all. And we'll definitely just keep uh keep getting these episodes out for you. We'll just keep going back and forth. Again, we've been focusing a lot more on cases rather than mental breakdowns. I think we're going to keep that trend see, because it's been working for us. <laughs> so. Happy Halloween. Happy Halloween. You can definitely follow us on Instagram at Diagnosing a Killer, Twitter at, at Killer Diagnosis. We have patreon.com slash Diagnosing a Killer if you want to support us that way. Uh, we're on anywhere you listen to podcasts. We also have a TikTok, Diagnosing a Killer, um, and you can email us at diagnosingakiller at gmail.com. If you have any suggestions now that we're doing these like more well-known cases, uh, definitely uh, shout us out. Give us a shout. Tell us who you want to hear about and uh, that rhymed. And <laughs> <laughs> All right. I think we're good. Yeah. Okay. We'll see All you guys right. later. Love, Love you. you. Bye. Bye.